Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's is a special episode, recorded live at a recent event we hosted, featuring Vanita Agarwala in conversation with three scientist founders from UCSF. This panel, which Vanita moderated, featured Michelle Arkin, a professor of pharmaceutical chemistry at UCSF, chair of the Department of Pharmaceutical Chemistry, and a co-director of the Small Molecule Discovery Center at UCSF, as well as a co-founder of both Elgan Therapeutics and Ambigon Therapeutics, in addition to Jimmy Yi, an associate professor of medicine at the Institute for Human Genetics at UCSF, and an affiliated investigator at Gladstone Institutes, as well as the co-founder of Drop Print Genomics and Survey Genomics. And finally, Natalia Jura, a professor in the Department of Cell and Molecular Pharmacology, and an investigator at the Cardiovascular Research Institute at UCSF. Professor Jura is also an associate director of the Quantitative Biosciences Institute and a co-founder of Rezo Therapeutics. The main topic of this event was how academics think about building the next transformative biotech company, when to translate the science, how to build towards a company, and which partners you need. Let's get started. Let's dive right in. I'm just, I have a series of questions that I think many of our audience members may have as you all are thinking about how to blend your academic and entrepreneurial interests or maybe make a change or find other um, champions for work that you'd like to translate into, into medicines. And so let's start with kind of this question of the right setting for the right science. How did you all decide when it made sense to move a piece of, of research or translational work out of your academic lab you know, out of the comfort of your academic lab and into the industrial setting or, or channel it into a startup? What does it mean to be the right place for the right science? I think about impact and there's going to be limited impact if we just publish a paper and if we have a cool piece of technology or assay and we really feel like it's going to be transformative for other academic researchers or companies, we just if we don't want it to sit on the shelf, then you have to do something a little bit different. And, and so for us, right, we evaluate the technologies we build. And if we feel like it's probably impactful uh, and we want people to use it, then, then we start thinking about commercialization. Yeah, there's definitely a right time where if you work on something that's really new. So what we should be doing in, in, in academics is stuff, stuff that's really new. And then it's you need to reduce it to practice enough to convince somebody what the investment thesis is. And 
my co-founder had been working on this target since he was a graduate student, and he just always believed it would be something important for therapeutics. But you know, there's finding the right chemistry, there's finding the right team, there's finding somebody in the ecosystem who can help us really get in front of the potential investors and really turn it into a company. So it's not just the science, it's also the all those pieces together and the team is so important for having that vision. I mean, scientifically, I think I probably would have held it back for a couple of years to get a little more, to de-risk certain aspects, but but I could tell those aspects weren't going to be the problem and the things that were going to be the problem were not problems I could solve. So that's when, when I become the liability on a project, that's when it's time to give it to the experts. All of your technologies did get their start in an academic lab setting funded by academic grants with the you know, talent of the academic community. So where along the timeline, when do you know it's the right time to move out? I think for me, it's, it's a matter of resources. At some point when we were working on our project, it, it just made so much sense to start all these different things and do all these different things, which no R01 grant can pay for or would like to pay for. So to basically get on board somebody who has the resources and helps with the vision. So that's one thing. And another thing is actually finding the right people to do it with. And and for that, that was at least my situation where like really great colleagues came together and it sounded just like that. that's the perfect time. Although like Michelle, I was also kind of hoping to hold on to it for a little bit longer and incubate it in the lab a little bit longer, but it just was the right time. You mentioned the importance of finding the right team. So let's talk about team a little bit. Maybe you all could just share a little bit about what roles and responsibilities you've taken on in these companies. Have you ever contemplated a leave? Was that ever something you thought would be beneficial? And who you reached out to to initially complement the expertise that you brought to the startup venture? The two companies we built couldn't look any different. Um, the very first company incubated in Y Combinator, I fully believed that my students could be the CEO and the CTO of this company. Uh, and so I was not involved at all. And in the second, this we didn't have an executive team. It was funded based on an idea. And so in the seed round, very first few months has been about assembling that team. And I, as much as I enjoy company building, there are a lot of other aspects of company building I don't enjoy as much. But I really just enjoy being part of that idea generation engine that's, you know, the academic world. And, and I just can't really see myself ever leaving that behind. Um, I don't want to work on just one idea. I want to work on lots of ideas. And for me, it's more like Jimmy that I like to have a lot of ideas. And this is the one that I really wanted to double down on and really invest in. And I'm very involved in the company. I'm on the board of directors and the SEB. I meet with the team twice a week at least. And I know my job is to obsolesce myself, right? Is that they should know more about the specific targets and the specific molecules than I do. And I can come in and say, okay, we developed this new technology that may be appropriate for you. Or I saw this talk and we just, because as academics, you have um, a lot of exposure to the outside world that I didn't have. I worked in biotech for nine years before I was an academic and then you're really focused in the lab and there's a different level of awareness of what else is going on. So I think it's valuable to the companies to keep the founders around for that. Maybe you could all double click a little bit in the situations where, you know, you're not running the company. What is your engagement? Michelle, I couldn't agree more. Most venture folks would say the same. I think that actually we, we really do care about founder engagement and keeping founders involved so much so that, you know, when we're doing diligence on an idea in a company, we often ask to meet with 
the academic founders specifically to poke a little bit at whether they know what's going on at the company. And it's a little bit of a red flag if they really have no idea. Um, at that point, you know, you know, IP has been translated out, but you, you haven't really tapped into the depth of the, of the learning that went on in the academic setting. So when you're not joining the company, what is your engagement model? It starts with, I'm not going to start a company if I don't think that scientifically this is something that I'm interested in anyway. So there's going to be an academic pursuit in my lab that, you know, is to, so that we can have a dialogue with the company about this, the science, and that's what I want to focus on. And so, but boy, everything, like I, I'm the first person to talk to our IP council because I know about all the papers that are out there, right? And, and I'm the person who evaluates, you know, like technical talent that comes through the, the company. I got this advice, well, you know, investors don't want to think that the founders are going to run the thing, that they're going to run it into the ground, that they're not going to let go of it. But then when I did start talking to seed stage investors that, I mean, I guess we passed the, the jerk test. So then they did want us to be involved because they saw, well, this is a, this is a new set of biological problems and chemical problems that if you guys aren't part of it, then we don't have any advantage over somebody else. So we do stay involved and it's, it varies depending on what's going on. Let's talk about you know, what went well and what didn't. You've all had some hard-earned lessons. What would you want to do again? A piece of your founding experience that you thought, hey, that went, that was great. And um, what might you do differently? I think having the right partners in that initial build of the company is, is really important. And sometimes it's hard to break the logjam. Like you need the money to get a great CEO or get a great CEO and then raise a lot. But regardless, I think like either you can already have an executive team that knows exactly what they're doing or partner with great VCs. The trend that you see in venture capital having more operational support, like I heard that you guys have a lot of operational support for new companies and these incubators that are being built up, like I think that can really help because they can de-risk some things. So then you could go out maybe before you're quite ready, but it's not something you really want to do in your lab. You end up in this, your own little valley of death that these incubator-based venture capitalists can, firms can help you get through. We hope so. Yeah, there's a time and place for different different models, we think. Yeah. I suspect um, IP licensing might be on some of your minds. You know, it's a complex process and a range of deal terms really can result, um, at least in our experience. Any, um, any guidance you all would have for how to manage that process? It took a long time, so that's one advice to really be patient and pay attention to everything. And a lot of uh, mistakes can happen and a lot of typos can happen and they all delay things tremendously. I think also, especially when it's early coming out of academics, there's maybe a disagreement, a willful disagreement on the both sides about how valuable the IP is. And they can be vastly different. And everybody you talk to will say, well, this is industry standard. Well, how can they both be industry standard? They're 10 times different from each other. So finding somebody who's independent, who can independently evaluate these things, who understands the marketplace and your specific, where this IP, the role that it plays in your company would also be really helpful. It's hard to find an independent person. So it, it depends. The network is really key. And so I mean, that's really just who you, who you know, who you can talk to, and then they'll send you to the next person, to the next person, and then eventually you'll get the information you need. The only thing I'll add is that you actually have to be kind of careful because there's a lot of potential for conflict of interest. And I've tried to not 
be involved in some of the IP negotiations because I'm a UCSF faculty member. But, you know, my personal experience has been that UCSF is actually quite good uh, compared to other public institutions and private institutions in terms of how quickly things get turned around. It's just complicated and it, it takes time and these agreements take time. Um, so the earlier you start that process, the, the, the better it is. And I'll just add maybe a couple, a couple observations on that topic. You know, one is to really kind of get to clarity on whether the IP that you're thinking about is more in the bucket of know-how or chemical matter. Um, and we often encounter kind of some haziness there, and I'm simplifying it dramatically too, and an IP lawyer would, would um, shoot me, but there, there are kind of two, two broad categories of IP, you know, a method, a system, a process, a string of methods that yield novel insight that sure only you have and only you know exactly how to do is still very different than chemical matter and, and thinking through all the kind of 12 terms that get negotiated in every IP license, you know, downstream of which one of those buckets you're in, you know, I think do have implications for how investors think about the value of the IP and the importance of each of those terms and how your IP counsel will think about it. And we have found that to be to be valuable. That was awesome. Thank you so, so much, Jimmy, Michelle, and Natalia for your perspectives and for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures.